So nine days ago, Brett um, asked me if I would fill in for him today. And since I don't have many opportunities to do favors for the hearts, I was inclined to say yes. Um, I just want you to know that Thomas and I, um, in fact, all of AHOP, we feel a great debt of love to you all here at Doxology. You've been great partners here, and you've adopted our children, and we are thankful for that. <laughs> the second reason I was inclined to say yes is I just like you all. <laughs> Speaking gives me an excuse to be here on a Sunday morning, so that's fun. But that left me with the problem of what to say and not a lot of time to prepare. <laughs> so, so I prayed and asked God, and I felt he said, just come and talk like a sister and tell them what's on your heart. So that's what I'm going to do today. And that means we're going to be in Ephesians 4 because that's where my heart has been for the last decade or so. <laughs> so um, I'm not a PowerPoint person. Um, if somebody wants to magically make Ephesians chapter 4 appear, that would be cool. Otherwise, we've got lots of Bibles back there. If John, do you pass out Bibles to anybody who wants one? Now, 
in my Church of Christ, women didn't lead, and they most certainly did not lead with guitars. This was unusual. Oh. <laughs> no instruments. So that was kind of unusual, but really sweet. And then it was time for the sermon. So the pastor stood up, but he wasn't sitting up front where he was supposed to sit. He was sitting out in the pews, and so I had to turn around to look at him. And he was a man about 50 years old with silver hair that fell over his shoulders. And no man in Diversity, Texas had hair over his shoulders, much less a pastor. That was kind of surprising. And then he stood up and said, I'm not going to give the sermon today. I've invited a young woman, a young Latina Catholic woman, to give the sermon. And this was totally unheard of. Because when I was little, what I was told about Catholics is they worship idols, and you should stay away from them. So I was pretty much in shock. And this beautiful young woman, who turned out to be a real person, who happens to be sitting here today, um, she got up and she, she gave the homily. It was about St. Diana, who happens to be a real saint, I didn't know at the time. And she said, we needed to be like her. We needed to pray for pastors. We needed to pray for all of our pastors for the church. Well, that's one dream I had. And I had another one, which involved Hope Chapel South when you were very young. And in that dream, I was in a church with big columns and it was a multi-story building. And there were people in long robes speaking a language I did not recognize until I heard Kyrie eleison, and I realized that they were Orthodox. At that time in my life, I hardly knew what an Orthodox Christian was. I had to go look it up. What is this? Um, so we were sitting there, and a minister came by to, to serve the Eucharist. And I had a sense that this is not my church. I don't know what's going on here. I, I decided to take communion. So I shook my head, and, and it was once again a woman. She passed me by, and somehow the host ended up in my mouth anyway. <laughs> point, what do you do but swallow? I <laughs> so that was another dream. And I, I really didn't know what to make of these dreams until a January day in 1999 when I was in my house just doing housewifely things. And I was thinking about a visit from my friend Sharon. Sharon had been in Austin over Christmas. And Sharon was a friend of mine from high school. We roomed together our freshman year of college. Sharon is one of the most intelligent intellectual people I've ever met. Intelligent at the level that she made a perfect score on her law school entrance exam to Stanford. That's that kind of intelligence. And when I knew her, she was also a little bit cynical. And of all of my friends in high school, she was the one that made me a little bit nervous about sharing my faith. But it turned out that God was after her anyway, didn't need a lot of my help. And she had a very dramatic conversion experience that freshman year that we were living together. But she came to the Lord in the Catholic Church, and that was okay with me. But I figured that as she studied scripture, a little more, became a little more mature, she would become enlightened and join a church more like mine. <laughs> that never happened. <laughs> but 
But we grew up, got married, moved apart, and for several years we had not talked a lot about our faith. Until that day I was just thinking about Sharon, and to be perfectly honest, I was thinking about her beautiful and highly precocious toddler, and truthfully I was thinking about how I might do things just a little bit different than Sharon was doing them. And I felt the Lord interrupt me very abruptly and tell me, Sharon loves her daughter, and I am well pleased with her. Ooh, I felt humbled and contrite. But God was not finished with me. <laughs> and he said, furthermore, I want you to pick up the phone, call her, and tell her she's a great mom. And so I had to explain to God this was not a good idea. <laughs> see, Sharon was really smart and really intellectual, and she was Catholic, and I just did not think that Catholics, especially smart ones, were into hearing the voice of God. <laughs> so I, I did not want to do this, but he was insistent with me. So I picked up the phone, and I delivered my message, and was ready to hang up <laughs> when Sharon really surprised me. It turned out that she was very open to this. And we ended up talking for two hours. And if you've ever been the mother of small children, you know that that in itself is a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Find two hours to talk on the phone. So we talked and talked, and I ended up telling her about these dreams I've been having. And then the tables were turned, and I realized I had been set up from the beginning. <laughs> She said, Amy, I've been having dreams about you, too. Really? She said, I've been having dreams that we've been sharing the Eucharist. We couldn't do that because Catholics have close communion. Sharon and I, for all the years we've known each other, never had communion together. And she said, Amy, I've been aching to ask you for years. Why aren't you Catholic? I was totally stunned. And I felt like I just stepped on a landmine. There was something in my heart that just I exploded. I didn't understand. I didn't know what was going on. So I said, oh, Sharon, thank you so much for, for sharing your heart with me, but I just I just can't be Catholic. I had to admit that idea in the bud. Just, no, I just can't go there. Um, I can't be Catholic because I don't believe the things the Catholic Church teaches. And she said, oh, I'm sorry, I should have never said anything, and that was the end of our phone call. But that was certainly not the end of the shaking that was going on in me. I went through the rest of that day kind of like a zombie, and when I put my children in bed, I couldn't sleep. I, I paced around the house, and I prayed, and I wrote Sharon a letter, and about two in the morning, I was in my kitchen when this pain fell on me. It was a physical pain. And I fell to the floor, just ripping my chest, and hardly able to breathe. But what came out of my mouth surprised me almost as much as the pain. What came out of my mouth was, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Because I felt like what I felt at that moment was a little bit of the pain of Jesus' heart over the division in the church. And I'd never known. I'd never known that it hurt like that. It hurt intensely, like divorce. And I don't think I could have actually physically stood it very long. So now I'm lost. <laughs> that experience was really precious to me. 
It's the time in all of my life that I think I felt the closest to Jesus. Because I felt, I felt the love of God and I felt the joy of God. But in that moment, I felt like Jesus entrusted me with a part of his heart that was, that was pain. Um, on the night of Jesus' passion, he prayed a very long prayer. It's called the High Priestly Prayer, and you can read it. It's in John. And over and over and over again, he prays that they may be one as you and I, Father, are one. That the world will know you sent me because they are one. And there's something in the church that's not the way Jesus wants it to be. He, he's grieved over church splits and over the walls and, and communion. And I believe that in a mystical sense, Jesus still longs for friends that will be with him in that place of pain and bear with him that pain of, dis of division, carry it to the place of prayer. I believe that what Jesus wants to see will happen. I believe we will see unity in the church, and I believe that we're going to see something that completely blows our minds away. But I think it's going to take people who realize that we're not there yet, and that there's something wrong out of kilter. So I had that experience, and, and I realized, you know, I'm a housewife in Austin, Texas. There is nothing I can do to fix this problem. There isn't. Um, but I can pray, and it changed the way I read scripture, and especially the way I read Ephesians chapter 4. So I need three readers, three volunteers. Okay, Carrie, you've got one through six, and um, Lynn, you've got seven through ten. And one more. Okay, um, 11 through 16. Okay, so go ahead. <coughs> As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort in unity of the Spirit to keep on with peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope and you are called, one Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But unto every one of us is given grace, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led the captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? <coughs> He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to the apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit supplies, oh, 
by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Amen. Amen. I love that passage. It's so beautiful. And Paul begins with this plea to live a life worthy of our calling. I think it's really hard for us to wrap our heads around the greatness of our calling, what we were really called to be. We're called to be the body of Christ, to do on earth the things that Jesus did bring people to the Father. We're also called to be the bride of Christ. We're going to live and reign with him forever. And it's hard to remember that when the sink is full of dishes and you have a deadline at work, right? It doesn't, it doesn't seem real, but that is, that is what's real. That's what's eternal. And the things that we say and do can have eternal consequences. And um, I was thinking about this part. Do you, how many of you seen The Lion King? Can you remember? Like when the, the monkey there is saying to somebody, remember who you are, right? <laughs> remember. <laughs> we need to take time every day to remember who we are because it changes the way we behave. And so we remember the greatness of our calling, and the very next thing Paul says is walk in all humility, right? So we need to keep those attention. We have a great calling and we walk in humility. Why do we walk in humility? Well, because I am not the body of Christ and you are not the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Right? Past, present, future, east, west, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, we together are the body of Christ and, and we need all of our members and we must honor them and treat them with reverence and respect. Otherwise, we're just a little finger off doing our thing. And that's not very noble, is it? <laughs> that's not glorious. Uh, but each of us does have an individual role. Each of us has a gift. Uh, that's what verse 7 says. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Measure is a word that's used several times in this pastor. How much? How much? How big is Christ's gift? How big do you think? The next verse gives us a clue. He says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to them. Um, I'm not going to get sidetracked by a lot of conjecture on what Christ did those three days he was in the tomb. But this is a verse. It's a poetic verse, probably from a song that the early church sang about Jesus descending into death, descending into hell, and he's bringing people out. He's bringing captives out, and he is taking them into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. This is a picture of Jesus as the king of heaven. And so what does the king of heaven have at his disposal? Is there anything he couldn't give? Is there anything he wouldn't give, having already given his body? There's nothing he wouldn't give, but it's interesting what he does give, right? What, what does Jesus think the best gifts are for his bride? Because he's going to give his bride the best. He can choose anything to give her, right? And what does he choose? He chooses apostles, prophets, what else? evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So those are the best gifts that Jesus can think of to give his bride. It's interesting. And why does he give us these gifts? He gives them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for the building up of the body until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. When I read that verse after I had this experience that I um, described, I was absolutely stunned. And I was thinking, God, you have got to be kidding. You know, <laughs> the fullness of the stature of Christ, that is what you want from us? I, that's just not going to work. That is impossible. <laughs> I just don't see that. Because that goal is a lot more than tolerance. It's a lot more than getting along with each other, right? Mm -hmm. It's full manhood. It's integrated into the head of Christ. And, um, and it's something that this world hasn't seen yet. And I have no idea how we're going to get there. But I do have a faith now that there's a unity that God has for the church that we haven't walked into yet. And it's going to be a beautiful and powerful thing. And at the very least, that's the goal we should fix our eyes on. And it's the prayer we should pray and it's the hope we should have. At least that's what's on my heart. So I want to talk a little bit about those gifts. And I'm going to ask you a question. It's a real question that you can answer in a few sentences. What do you think an apostle is? Someone who plants churches. Okay. Any other thoughts? That's got to be a requirement. Yes. <laughs> that was a, a. Anybody else? Any other thoughts? But, you know, I think it's certainly some, someone who has a place of leadership who in, in history has had a, a very profound uh, ability to hear the, the Spirit. Directing okay. the, the direction of the church. Yeah, I like the word profound. There, there's, there are not a lot of apostles. But if you were to ask that question to the first century Christians, it was an easy answer. The first century Christians, they could name them all, right? <laughs> they were the disciples of Jesus. And the, those were the apostles. And then as the gospel began to spread, there was an anointing for, for preaching that obviously fell on a few others. Paul, Barnabas. Apollos, those were the apostles. Everybody knew who they were. As the church grew and matured, those apostles trained up other men and sent them off. And eventually, the role of apostle became synonymous with the office of bishop. That's the way it was thought of for centuries. The bishops were the apostles. They had authority over a city or over an area. But sadly, over the centuries, many bishops became very, very corrupt and lost their first love, and it became an office of human power rather than spiritual authority. It became so bad that there was a huge correction that had to take place, and that was the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation bore a lot of fruit. It was all about a renewal. Um, it was about a return to Christ. But one of the results of the Reformation is that it weakened the apostolic role. Or it might be more accurate to say the bishops themselves weakened their role or gave their role up through sin. And when that happened, we lost the visible unity of the church. 
So something changed, something dramatically changed in the way the church is organized. Before the Reformation, one of the most important roles of bishops was to confer and to settle matters of doctrine. Because Jesus was a great teacher, but he did not leave us with all of the instructions we needed. You know? <laughs> like, for example, there was this question of what to do with these Gentiles who were becoming believers. Jesus didn't tell us, do they have to be circumcised? What should they eat? So the apostles gathered to hash out these questions. And he didn't really tell us a lot about the Trinity either. He talked about the Holy Spirit and his Father, but the doctrine as we know it, one God, three persons, that was not universally accepted until 300 years after Jesus ascended. So there was a role that the bishops played in the early church that we don't really have an equivalent of today. When Luther broke from the Catholic Church, he broke free of that apostolic structure. And he set up his own apostolic structure, and Calvin set up his own, but a lot of the other streams, the Anabaptists, they did away with it all together. And something really beautiful and wonderful happened. People began to read the scripture themselves, and the word became to dwell in individuals. And that was a good and right and beautiful thing. But we lost some of the apostolic authority. So here we are in the 21st century, and truthfully, I really don't know what an apostle looks like in the 21st century. I, I don't know what God has in mind. I look at people like Pope John Paul II, and I believe he walked an apostolic authority that carried beyond the Catholic Church. I think Billy Graham walked an apostolic authority, even though he was mostly an evangelist. He had respect, widespread respect. And I pray for godly leaders. I pray that God would raise up um, apostles, men who can teach, and men with authority and wide sections of this of the body of Christ because it does bring unity. But I don't know what it will look like. There obviously is no going back. But I don't know what going forward looks like either. It's just something to pray about. Okay, another question for you. What is a prophet? Visionary? primary roles. They pointed to the Messiah and they called Israel back to her first love when she had fallen away. And I think prophets continue to do those things. I think prophets remind us that Christ is coming again. And they call, they call us to holiness and they call our whole society to justice. In my eyes, the greatest American prophet of our time anyway, was the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. All right. Oh. Thank you, Leslie. So, um, Dr. King called our whole nation to repentance. And that call was not always well received, even by Christians, right? I believe that some of you went to the Capitol a few months ago, right, and set out in the rain on behalf of Uganda's invisible children, right? 
And then that was a prophetic act, I believe. You were acting as apostles, or as prophets, rather. You were calling us to compassion and to action, and you were calling for justice. The truth about prophets is they are a nuisance. <laughs> they make us uncomfortable. They make demands of us. But we as a church, we desperately need them. We can be hard on prophets because we they can sound scolding and they can sound legalistic. And we know that that's not God's heart. But I really believe... Um, that when a prophet speaks in love, he does what Ethan says. He pulls from us. He pulls beauty and truth and courage out of us. And we all know that, that non-Christians, unbelievers, are turned off by hypocrisy and are turned off by legalism. And that's good. That's right. Because that's not the spirit of God. But I really believe that they long for holiness. And deep down, they really want the church to live the way Jesus lived. They really do. You know, I, I heard a story about um, Mother Teresa, who in her very old age, about this tall, came to give a speech at Harvard. And she gave a speech to those young people, and she gave them a tongue lashing for the evil of abortion. And they stood up and gave her a standing ovation because they, see, they saw that she walked in holiness, and they loved it. So the body of Christ, we need prophets and we need to welcome them and we need to pray for them, even when they challenge us and they make us uncomfortable. And we need evangelists too. Why do we need evangelists? Yeah. Of all of the ones, all of the, the, the offices on this list, I, I, used, I thought, why evangelists? Why do evangelists bring unity? And as I thought about it, I thought, well, it's because not all of our members are joined to us yet, right? We can't be unified if we're not all together. And there are people who haven't heard the message yet, but if they did, they would very much want to be part of the body of Christ. I thought my friend Sharon didn't want to hear. I was very wrong. So we need to pray for evangelists to be raised up, and we really need to stir that gift up in ourselves. I was much more evangelistic as a young person than I am now. It's partly because I'm surrounded by Christians. <laughs> but it's a, it's a beautiful gift, and we need it. We have pastors left. You all know what pastors are. Pastors foster unity by caring for the spiritual needs of individual members and of small groups. They teach, they pray, they counsel, and they have leadership. They provide leadership for small parts of the body. You know you have a pastor who loves you dearly. You're always in his thoughts and he's always talking about you. In fact, your entire church is rich in the gift of pastoring. I haven't been part of this church ever, but I have been friends with this church for a long time. And I know that you have deep, deep friendships and you have a, you're very loyal. And you have some fantastic youth pastors as well. <laughs> You have youth pastors who take this gift outside of the walls of this church, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, because the role of a pastor is a healing role, and because you are good at it as a church, you can take it outside. You can pastor the children of your, the, your children's friends. You can pastor 
your neighbors. You can pastor the people you work with by caring for them, loving for them, and praying for them. So this summer, Noah and Peggy went with the doxology youth to Galveston. Most of you probably know that while he was there, his heart went into arrhythmia twice, and he had to be taken to the hospital twice. Um, the second time, he was admitted to ICU, and Carrie never left his side. And I hear she was far more entertaining than I was in the hospital. <laughs> so if you have a long hospital stay, call Carrie. <laughs> we called the hearts. Um, we called them to ask them to pray for Noah, of course, but also because we realized that was a strain on the entire trip, on everybody, because, you know, the youth pastors run the hospital. Um, before I had finished the story, Brett was making plans to drive to Galveston and pick Noah up, bring him home. And that touched me. We didn't let him do it because we thought that was our responsibility. But the trip he had in mind was going to bring him home about 2 in the morning. And I thought that was very, very kind of him. And I felt well-loved and cared for. So anyway, doxology, go, be pastors, do it. You're good. And you're also good teachers. You are richly blessed with teachers. Yeah. That's the last, Paul that, last gift that Paul mentions. We have the food going around our house, sorry. <laughs> so teachers have the responsibility of shaping our minds. They help us understand scripture, they understand doctrine, they help us understand English and algebra, right? <laughs> and teachers, they foster unity when they teach in love and honor and humility. I learned a lot about <coughs> racial reconciliation from my fourth grade teacher who taught in a minority school and she, she just modeled for me how to walk in grace across uh, racial divides. It was very beautiful. And teachers can foster disunity. Like any of these gifts that are mentioned, if they're used badly, they bring disunity. Anything that is twisted, anything designed to bring unity, if it's used wrongly, it will bring disunity. And so teachers foster disunity when they speak in arrogance and pride. As I said, you are rich in the gift of teaching, both inside the church and outside. And so I would say what Paul says to you, live a life worthy of your calling. Those five gifts that we mentioned have a special place in the functioning of unity in the body because they appeal to our minds and frankly, they appeal to our obedience. But they're not the only gifts that God gives, not by any means. They're gifts of worship and service and administration. Thank God for the gift of administration, which I do not have. <laughs> There's the gifts of music and dance, and every single gift that God gives is given for the building up of the body in love. All gifts are given to serve. And if we don't give away our gifts, we're poor stewards of the gifts. But I'm blessed to live with Noah and Ethan, and they have gifts of music, and every day I get to enjoy their gift of music, and I don't have to practice. And I don't have to go to lessons, it's just mine, right? That's great. That's how the body should work. When we're flowing in the spirit, all that I have is yours, and all that you have is mine. 
And there is no room for envy or jealousy or a selfish ambition, right? <laughs> So this fellowship doxology is rich in gifts, and you're probably far richer than you know. I know that you have really open hearts, and I know that you value many different streams in the body of Christ. And so in many ways, I'm, I'm speaking straight into your strength today, and I know that. Um, I've watched this church pour themselves out for Trace Diaz. And that is a really beautiful thing. That is a gift that directly brings unity to the body of Christ. And so um, I just want to encourage you. I think it's a precious offering. I think the Lord is well pleased. And I think that you are serving, um, building up unity in the whole body. And many of you minister healing and unity just in your regular vocations when you're teaching, when you work. Over a year ago, I was here at the Seabrook Center with a friend of mine who was really desperately depressed and to the point of being suicidal. And it just so happened that Brett happened to be there that night and I ran into his office and said, Brett, what would you do? He said, well, if I were you, I'd call Mark Catalano, which is what I did. And he helped me get to this friend checked into Shoal Creek and she's on medication and she is much, much better. And so it's a picture of um, how in our normal vocations we can bring unity and wholeness to the body of Christ. So what I would like to encourage us all to think on today is three things. One is just the preciousness of the unity of the body of Christ. I just like to lift our vision of what that looks like a little higher lift our hopes a little higher, make our prayers a little more intense for that unity. And secondly, I would like to encourage us to pray for these gifts that God wants to give to his church. I want us to, to be like St. Diana in that dream. Pray for our pastors, pray for teachers, pray for prophets, evangelists, and, and apostles. And thirdly, you know, I would just like for you all to think, what are the gifts God has given me? What is it that God has placed in me? What do I have to serve? And how can I offer that to the body of Christ for the sake of unity? So um, if I'd had more time and if it hadn't been flu season, I would have invited more members from AHOP to come today. Because one of the gifts we have to offer, we try to offer as a gift of prayer and intercession. Um, there are not many of us here today. But um, I would like to ask Sandy, who is on the board of directors for AHOP, to come and say a prayer for you all as a church, because we really do love doxology, and we want to pray for you and bless you today. And, um, and then we save the best for last. Jenny's going to come and dance, which is great. But <laughs> I, I'll also say something about Jenny, too. Jenny has a gift of dance as well, and she's giving that away at Krista Ray. And it's fostering unity. So I'm really happy about that. So Sandy's going to come and pray, and then Jenny's going to come and bless us. But I would like to say that um, if there's anybody who would like to stay after church and would like to, to receive prayer as a gift that we have to offer, Sandy and I will do that, won't we, Sandy? 
Okay. <laughs> I didn't get much of a chance to talk to Sandy this morning. <laughs> All right. So Sandy, why don't you come on up? Pleasure and honor to hear that. I know some of you from former days at Hope Chapel, but many I don't know. So, uh, but I would be very glad just to pray blessing over what Amy said is already a strength of this congregation. And so I'll do that now. Um, I believe this call to unity is a hugely important gift. If you know the scripture that speaks of the sons of Issachar who knew the times and the seasons, this is a son of Issachar gift that God wants to give widely to his body, but not everyone will accept it, Like, kind of like Mission Impossible. That's what was going through my mind as Amy was teaching. I forget the words that we heard, but always when that tape recorder was going off and the thing was, this is your mission should you choose to accept it. Really, I believe that one of the most prophetic and most profound messages I've heard recently from a Catholic priest is that every member of the body of Christ is called to, to unity and, and to foster it in whatever way possible, but not all the members of the body of Christ choose to accept it. And so what I feel like God is saying that he is very pleased with all of you who would choose to accept it, it is not easy. There's pain in it, and there's a great call to humility. But it's very pleasing to God, and I believe very important in this hour. So I pray, Father, that you would increase the capacity of this beautiful congregation to carry your heart, your pain, your hope, to see a unified body I pray that you would grace them with, with great humility. You would expand their capacity for that, their capacity to bow low. Also, I pray that you would increase their joy. These would be those whose eyes see far into the horizon, the coming joy and glory of our returning Messiah, who will not return to a disunified body, but he longs to return. And so I pray for these who will prepare the way and remove the obstacles. Pray that you would strengthen their hearts and their minds. You would give them every wisdom and all discernment. I believe God wanted me to ask him for, for grace for you all to see this unity begin to happen smaller spheres of your lives, in your families, in friendships that you have that are currently disunified, that may be actually a pain to your own hearts, in marriages that you know that are evidencing a disunity, uh, in a workplace where there's obvious strife. In these smaller spheres, I believe God wants to give you influence toward unity to be ambassadors and to carry a light and a power. And from these smaller spheres, you would be built up and encouraged to realize that you can speak and proclaim and work for this greater unity in the body of Christ. So I bless this in this coming week, that you would see these areas and your prayers and your groaning and the pain you carry, the words you would speak, 
would begin to bring unity into these places. Mm -hmm. And you would feel that God is, is raising you up for this greater work of unity on the earth. One of the things I was struck with when Ethan led worship was how many times we said, holy, holy, holy. So I also bless you with the discernment to know that in this unity there is holiness. In other words, we are not called to be unified to everything. There are things that will not be in God's heart. So I pray for that discernment. That is difficult for us in the body of Christ. We are called to unity, but we will not be unified with things that are evil. So I pray again for a gift of discernment to add to your strength, a growing discernment, and the ability to stand against evil, to love what God loves and hate what he hates, and to carry this great gift into the body of Christ. I pray you would feel God's pleasure as you do it, pleasure that would overcome the pain, and great joy at realizing that you are very, very close to his heart. I bless this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.